Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. Going to be having a chat about the Great Train Robbery, which was, I mean, you know, can you guess? It was a robbery that took place on a train. And I suppose also from at least the perspective of the robbers was pretty great for, you know, a while at least, as we'll get into. Anyway, in the early morning of the 8th of August in 1963, there was a gang of 15 men, plus a couple of other, you know, masterminds, informants, planners, planners and other accomplices, who stopped an overnight mail train which was carrying millions of pounds in cash. And they managed to steal about two and a half million pounds, about 58 million pounds in today's money, uh, after planning the entire robbery very carefully using, uh, using information from a man on the inside, known only as the Ulster Man. Very mysterious indeed. The heist has its uh, its fair share of thrills and spills, secrets and intrigue, and uh, I, well, I probably should say very little in the way of blood and guts and horrible murder. In fact, the, the robbers were determined to pull off the robbery without any violence at all, and they weren't even armed with guns as they uh, as they undertook this heist here. Um, one bloke did get a pretty bad bonk on the head, but that was more or less it. This enormous uh, heist was, was pulled off very quickly, very efficiently, and with a minimum of violence. But as for afterwards, well, when it came to the getaway, a very different story indeed, as we'll come to. Very entertaining one too as well. But before we begin, big thanks go to alert listener Joe Lynch, who suggested this as a topic, and, absolutely, and it was an absolutely brilliant one as well too. So thanks very much. Cheers very much, Joe. Good on you. Anyway, let's begin. We'll begin at the beginning. Get across the uh, the great train robbery uh, from start to finish. Here we go. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to 1963. And this is the year that the robbery took place. And uh, we'll, we'll start our story by meeting a fella named Brian Field. Now, Field, born in 1934, he'd served in the Korean War for the British Army. And after coming back to the UK, he worked for a law firm as a, as a solicitor's managing clerk. Now, he was a very successful bloke. He did very well in this job. Um, he was, uh, you know, he was very wealthy, driving around a nice car, had a nice house, happily married, doing very well indeed. In fact, he was doing so well, he was actually doing better than his boss. He's earning more money from this job and, you know, driving around a flashier car and all that sort of stuff than he's the, the bloke he was actually working for. And you might be thinking, well, hang on, I'm just scratching your head. Why, what's going on here? Why is he doing better than his boss? And it is because Field didn't mind, um, how can we put this? bending the rules a little bit for his benefit. This bloke, he was crooked as anything. He was a crooked lawyer. He helped uh, the criminal underworld with all sorts of legal chicanery, bribing cops, arranging false alibis, all sorts of stuff that he shouldn't shouldn't be doing. But worse than that, worse than all of the, you know, the stuff he was doing in the office, he'd also pass information about the interiors and the contents of his wealthy clients' homes to criminals who would then organise burglaries, right? And obviously, he'd get a little, a little skim a little something off the top there, a little finder's fee. So, he had a nice little racket going on as this bent lawyer here. Anyway, in, uh, in 1962, the year before our story takes place, he'd been involved in defending some blokes, uh, some London gang members, right? They were from the Southwest Gang in London. Um, when they robbed a bank. And one of the robbers was a fella named Gordon Goody, obviously very ill-suited name, probably should have been known as, uh, as Gordon Baddy. But uh, with, um, with Field defending this bloke uh, for his robbery charge, the two of them obviously, they knew each other, got on pretty well. And it's with Field and Goody that our story begins properly. Because one day, Field set up a meeting, right? He set up a meeting with himself, with his mate Goody, and a mysterious bloke known only as the Holsterman. 
Now, the Ulsterman's identity has never been conclusively determined. There have been plenty of guesses as to who he was. Uh, we know that in 1963, he was a middle-aged fella, slightly balding, with a Northern Irish accent, hence his nickname, the Ulsterman. But the Ulsterman was, he had worked in security, right, within the Royal Mail. And he had a juicy tip-off about a potential robbery target, a mail train that would be carrying millions of pounds in cash. And uh, obviously, you know, he sought someone out to pass this potentially very valuable information on, hoping that they could act on it and maybe he'd get a bit of a payday. So the Ulsterman set it was uh, was set up with this meeting through Fields, right, uh, with this this London gangster from the Southwest Gang uh, named Goody, right, Gordon Goody. So the three of them, they get together and the Ulsterman lays out all these details to Field and Goody about uh, about what's going on with this train. According to him, in early August, an overnight Royal Mail train was going to travel from Glasgow all the way down south to London, right? And the circumstances for a robbery of this train, they couldn't be riper, right? For an incredible heist. Mail trains often took this route. There wasn't, it wasn't unusual for an overnight train to be traveling uh, from, you know, from Scotland all the way down to the, the south of England. But... This train in particular, right, would have, uh, it would not only be an easier job than usual, but would also pay much higher dividends, according to the Ulsterman. Now, why was this train so special? Well, we'll come to that in just a second. I'll, I'll explain in just, uh, just a little bit here. But after hearing how, you know, succulent this, uh, this, this train, this target was going to be for a robbery here, Goody, right, a career criminal, obviously, he's very interested, of course. And, uh, and after the Ulsterman passed over this information, Goody, he goes back to his gang and he starts to make arrangements to rob, rob this train. He goes back to his boss, who's a bloke named Bruce Reynolds. And Reynolds is obviously also as keen as mustard to get involved. And this sounds like a great gig. But the problem there, the problem they run into the Southwest gang here is that they have very little experience indeed in the way of robbing trains. So they decide that they have to bring in another gang to help them, right? So they, they sort of subcontract almost, and they bring in another gang called the South Coast Raiders. Now, the South Coast Raiders, they had a fair bit of experience robbing trains, and so Reynolds and Goody, they approach them, lay out the information, and of course, there is probably the scene where they go, yep, you son of a bitch, I'm in, no worries. Now, as the plan developed, more men were added until it ended up being a total of 16 blokes, or 17 if you include the Ulsterman, who made up the core crew of this job, plus a couple of other accomplices who would, you know, would play minor roles. But these blokes, they all had various jobs. Some, you know, knew about uh, decoupling trains. Some were getaway drivers. A lot of them were just muscle, obviously. But the plan came together. The crew, uh, you know, grew in size. And ultimately, I mean, look, it was a pretty big crew, but it was a pretty big job. And, and, even when they, you know, calculated what the take was going to be and how much they'd, you know, split, even after splitting it up, uh, uh, the, the the loot they were expecting uh, amongst the seventeen of them, it was it was still going to be quite a payday there. But uh, but but you know, you probably want to know why were they so keen? Why why this train in particular? Well, here's the uh, here's the inside information that the Ulsterman provided to them. As I said, overnight trains, mail trains from Glasgow to London, they, they were common enough, right? And it, it, it's actually quite interesting how they function. The train, were, this train, this overnight train was what uh, used to be called a travelling post office. And it was actually filled with mail sorters who went through all the stuff that had been posted, right? They bagged it up and, believe it or not, dropped it off 
while the train was moving. I couldn't believe this, but apparently the system was to hang sorted mail off the side of the train as it went through a station near where the, the post was to be delivered. And the people on the platform would snatch it off the train as it went past. And at the same time, mail from that area, from the station, would be chucked onto the train as it went past as well. So a very efficient way of doing things, has to be said. It meant the train didn't have to make all these stops on its way south. So very interesting way. I, I, I mean, it's got it's got nothing to do with the, with the robbery here. The system doesn't actually come into this story at all, but I just thought it was interesting to get across. Anyway, um, we don't care about the 11 carriages that are on this train that, are, you know, the, there are 70 or so mail workers sorting through post and chucking it off the side of the train, getting new sack coming in, whatever else. We don't care about them. We care about the 12th carriage, the one hooked up right after the engine, because that was known as the HVP coach, the high value packages coach. And in the HVP coach, you'd find the registered mail, anything from local, you know, anything valuable that had been that had been posted locally, but needed to be shipped further south, right? And in addition to that, you'd also find a huge amount of cash. Now, I don't know what the cash was doing there. It might have been the takings from local post office branches. I don't know. I wasn't able to find that out. But whatever the reason, the HVP coach is carrying all this valuable post as well as a lot of money, right? But here's where the plot thickens with this train in particular because usually the HVP coach carried about about 300,000 pounds, right? A, a sizable amount, but certainly not enough to fund a 17-person robbery here, No. But the overnight train on the 7th and 8th of August, however, it would be carrying between two and a half and three million pounds because there had been a public holiday the weekend before. And so there would be a ton of extra cash aboard. But wait, there's more because, right, the security issues that came with transporting, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds around the country meant that the Royal Mail had begun to equip uh, their HVP coaches with things like, you know, barred windows, reinforced doors, alarm systems, that sort of thing. And uh, at the time the robbery had taken place, there were three such HVP coaches with the advanced, you know, the advanced and enhanced security systems. But for whatever reason, these upgraded coaches weren't in service at the time that this particular mail shipment was being made. And therefore, an older HVP coach, an unupgraded one, was to be used for this journey. Additionally, on top of that, right, and I don't know why this was the case, there was there were no guards or anything. There were no guards or security staff or anything like that to protect the HVP coach and its contents. It would just be, you know, just be the postal workers inside it. So you've got this unprotected coach without any of the security upgrades carrying 10 times the amount of money that is normally sent on one of these trains. All of the planets are in alignment here. You know, this is this this was how valuable the information from the Ulsterman was. This HVP coach, without the extra security upgrades, was scheduled to carry so much bloody money you wouldn't believe it. And so, as you understand, these criminals very 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 keen indeed to carry out this robbery. So. In the time leading, leading up to the robbery, the 15 gang members, they planned, they practiced, they prepared, they got everything that they needed for the job going and, uh, you know, and, and, and just went over it over and over again, um, how, how it was all, you know, planned to, uh, to be carried out. Now, Reynolds, the leader of this whole thing, he wanted it to be very quick. He wanted the entire robbery to, robbery to take no longer than 30 minutes. He wanted to be very, you know, very swift in and out. He didn't want to use violence. He didn't want to have anyone get seriously hurt or killed. And it's not just those 15 blokes who were doing some work as well. I said there were, you know, there, there were the other two members of the, of the main 17 robbers, Field and the Ulsterman. Um, they, they actually weren't personally involved with the robbery. They weren't planned to be part of the crew who was going to be on the ground there. I mean, the Ulsterman actually, he's 
role it ended with the information he'd passed on. That was it. But Field had one more thing to organise, to, uh, you know, a, a sort of uh, an, an oversee, I guess, even if he wasn't actually going to be robbing the train, because Field organised the hideout that the robbers planned to use, uh, planned to use after the heist, right, to lay low, uh, divide up the spoils and, and make their eventual clean getaway. We'll talk more about the hideout and what happened there in due course. But for now, let's actually talk about the robbery itself. So, with all the preparations made, with the gang ready to rob this train and uh, and make off with their massive payday, right? Just before 7 o'clock in the evening on the 7th of August in 1963, this unsuspecting Royal Mail train with all 12 carriages plus the engine and over 70 postal workers aboard, uh, you know, to sort and distribute the mail as they, as they, as they, uh, they travelled, it set off from Glasgow Central Station, not having any idea that this journey was going to be a little different from many of the others. The journey was slated to last nine hours, with the train arriving at Euston Station in London at four in the morning on the 8th of August. Now, the journey got underway uh, without any issues at all, and it drove through the night. You know, Chuck picked up its mail, chucked off the ones that needed to be uh, needed to be sorted, and, uh, it, you know, drove all the way through to the, uh, to the small hours again without anything going wrong. But around th- at around three o'clock, right, just an hour outside of London, uh, the train was in between... <laughs> It was in between the towns, uh, and this is not a joke, right? These are the names of these towns. It was between the two towns of Leighton Buzzard and Cheddington. I mean, if I had to make up two names to make fun of how silly some English town names sound, I probably would have ended up with something like Leighton Buzzard and Cheddington, but those are real towns. Anyway, it was between Leighton Buzzard and Cheddington. And uh, it was it was between these two towns that the issues began because they're driving along, and the driver of the train, uh, an older bloke named Jack Mills, right? He came to an unexpected red light, a red a red signal light, right? And he's going, oh, "What's going on here? This isn't right. We should be speeding through to London. We're due in at Euston in an hour. There's no reason the signal light should be uh, should be red." But he stops the train all the same, just as he's ordered to. And uh, he sends off the other bloke that's driving the train with him, a young fellow named David Whitby. He sends him off to have a look at the signal box to see what the problem is. So Whitby exits the train cab. He walks over to the signal, climbs up the ladder to have a look at it, and he finds that the green light has had a glove, right, stuffed into the little cylinder that holds the light to cover it up, to block it. And what's more, a six-volt battery has been, you know, rigged up to the red light to turn it on. Now, this is very bloody suspicious indeed. What's all this about? Whitby climbs back down. He heads or he heads over to one of the emergency phones that are, that are beside the tracks uh, in order to, you know, to call in what's happened. But he finds the line has been cut. Now, at this point, Whitby, I mean, he must have known something was up. He's cutting thousands of pounds in the train. Someone's playing funny buggers with the signal and, uh, and, and the phone lines. But before he could get back to the train and talk to Mills about it and decide what they were going to do, he was grabbed by someone, he was overpowered, and at the same moment, more people piled onto the train, into the engine cab and seized control of it. They're all dressed in these blue coveralls and they're hooded, right? And they worked very quickly and very efficiently to hijack this train. Now, poor Mills, he got whacked over the head and he went down like a sack of spuds, the poor bloke. And these blokes who have seized the trains, obviously, you know, the robbers we've been talking about, they decouple the engine and the first carriage, the HVP coach, of course. They leave the other 11 carriages just stranded on the railway. And then they wheel in their own driver to drive the train down to where the rest of the gang was waiting. Because the, at the place that the train had stopped, the signal thing, very steep embankments on either side of the train. It wasn't an appropriate place to offload all the cash. However, 
it's here that the robbers run into their first issue, right? They've successfully subdued the drivers of this train. They've managed to take control of it. But they find that their bloke, right, is unable to drive it. This, you know, this driver, he's an old bloke. He's been, he's been retired for years. And if you believe it, he didn't know how to drive this more modern, more complicated and fancy locomotive. This fella, he'd spent his career shunting trains around yards or whatever else. So he did know how to drive trains, but this one, he didn't know how to drive this, you know, this new fancy train with all the bells and whistles. Imagine just like your bloody grandpa trying to work an iPad, he couldn't figure out how to make the train go. Unbelievable. Anyway, they realize it's no good. This old fellow, he's not going to be able to, he's not going to be able to help them drive it, right? So the robbers instead have to wake poor old Mills up and get him to drive it. Now, again, you'll remember that Reynolds was saying no violence. We don't want anyone to get killed or anything else like that. The robbers were armed with uh, with coshes and, and, and metal bars, but none of them had any guns or anything like this. Mills had been whacked over the head and it was it was a pretty bad injury, really. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it here. This bloke did get a, a fair whack on the bonce there. But apart from that, most of the people that were on the train remained completely unharmed and unhurt. And Mills at this stage realised it's probably just better to cooperate with these blokes. And so after he's been roused from this, you know, days he's been in, put into semi-unconsciousness because he's been whacked on the head, he gets up and he drives the train, right? He complies with the, tro- the robbers and he drives the train a short way down from the signal box to a bridge, which was then known as the Bredago Bridge. And it's there, the rest of the crew are also in coveralls with hoods, right? They're waiting to get stuck into the HVP coach. They'd hung a white sheet across uh, from a pole near the bridge to signal where the, where the train should stop. And once the train arrived, the two drivers, are, are uh, they're handcuffed. They uh, the the robbers break into the HVP coach, right? I mean, they're, you know, there are there are the people inside. There are male staff, four or five of them. Inside. I mean, they they realise something's up, obviously, and and the workers inside the HVP coach they actually put up some resistance. They tried to stop the robbers from uh, from breaching the the coach, but you know, they they're whacked with coshes for their trouble, and, and the five or so of them again, no match for the the hardened criminal, the fifteen hardened criminals ready to empty the HVP coach of its loot. The robbers they put all the postal workers and the two drivers into a corner of the HVP coach, and then they began to ferry the sacks of money from within the coach out to the truck that they had waiting by the bridge. Now, you can imagine this HVP coach stuffed to the gills with sack after sack after sack of cash, right? And so the 15 robbers, they formed a chain and quickly passed sacks from one to the other, filling up the back of their truck with, I mean, there were 128 sacks filled with cash, mostly in one and one and five pound notes. Um, and so they begin to to unload them, pass them off down the line and, and load them into the back of this truck that they'd brought. But you'll remember that Reynolds had imposed a very strict 30-minute time limit on the robbery. And he was intent to, he was intent upon sticking sticking to it. I'll I'll let you know. And you know, as they worked passing sack from hand to hand very quickly, they didn't manage to get all the sacks before the half an hour was up. It had taken 10 minutes to hijack the train and drive it into position. And after another 20 minutes, 20 further minutes of emptying the HVP coach of, of all their sacks of money, seven or eight sacks remained behind in the HVP coach. They couldn't take them with it. They ran out of time. Reynolds made them stick to their limit, withdrew the robbers after half an hour, leaving behind around £130,000 in cash. Quite a sizable amount that they left behind there, but doesn't matter. At Reynolds' command, the thieves, they they, uh, they, they packed up their bags, they, they left, they told the staff that they'd left behind not to move for, for half an hour, and then they loaded themselves into the truck, and to, into two Land Rovers that they'd brought, both which had uh, illegal identical number plates, and they fled the scene with two and a half tonnes 
of stolen money. The robbers had equipped their vehicles with police radios, and as they fled the scene, they all made their separate ways, right, to a place called Leather Slade Farm, just over 40 kilometres from the scene of the crime. They stuck to smaller back roads, they listened carefully to the police radios for any sign of an alarm or anything else like that, and eventually they all arrived at this hideout, right, the, the Leather Slade Farm, and this was the hideout that Field had organised for them in the lead up to the robbery. So let's talk about this hideout, let's talk about this farm. Field had chosen it for a couple of reasons, the main one being that it was so run down and unkempt that it wasn't marked on local maps. Field had talked one of his clients at the law firm, a bloke whose name was also very confusingly, it was also Field, they weren't, they weren't related to each other, but this bloke, Lenny Field, had been talked into buying it by Brian Field, uh, and he'd said he'd pay him not to ask questions, just let him use it as a hideout. So Lenny assumed something illegal was going on, didn't realise it was you know going to be the largest cash robbery that the UK had ever seen at this point. But this, uh, this, this hideout had been organised and it had been set up and furnished for these blokes to, uh, to head in there, lay low for a couple of days, divide up the loot and then make good their getaway. So the robbers, after having pulled off this heist, they drove to Leather Slade Farm and they all got there safely, no worries at all. They, uh, they arrived with, uh, with the money intact without any issues or arguments cropping up on the way. And uh, once they arrived you're really not going to believe what they did, right? Because it's bloody, it's four o'clock in the morning, don't forget. They've just pulled off this, uh, this massive robbery. And after getting back to the farmhouse, some of them sat around a table. One of the thieves brought out an old Monopoly set. And some of them sat around this table and played Monopoly with the cash that they'd just stolen. Unbelievable. I mean, talk about taking it easy once you've pulled off this massive, massive heist. Just sit around playing a game of bloody Monopoly. Unbelievable. Anyway, the others uh, who weren't, you know, sitting around playing a board game, uh, they counted up and started dividing the cash into 17 shares. A couple of smaller shares for the accomplices who had helped them out with, without being involved in the robbery itself, like the old bloke who was supposed to, uh, supposed to drive the train. He was still getting paid. Not quite the same pay. To, you know, not, not quite one seventeenth share, but a couple of smaller uh, little drinks for all the rest of the people who had helped them here and there. And the total haul from this robbery has it's actually never been conclusively calculated, but it's been estimated by various people and it's estimated to have been in excess of, of two and a half million pounds, right? The police claimed that the exact amount was £2,595,997.10, shillings. so quite a sum of money. And when divided up amongst all the robbers, they each walked, they each walked away with a share of over £150,000 each. Not a bad little payday, really, which is, I mean, in, these, in today's money, it's over £3 million for a night's work, so not too bad at all. It was, as I say, the largest cash robbery in British history. Um, and, uh, you know, for a while there at Leather Slade Farm, the robbers, they thought they'd gotten away with it. No worries at all. But then, I mean, you know what's, you, you know what's coming. It only got worse from there, of course. At about 20, uh, about 20 past four, the police radio blazed to life. The crime had been reported and the police were now alerted to what had happened. Now, this wasn't unexpected. Obviously, they weren't thinking that no one was going to notice, particularly as they pulled off this brazen robbery in front of, you know, live witnesses. But it happened a little bit faster than they thought. And the results of the police report, the, 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 you know, the report being made to the police uh, meant that the robbers actually had to change their plan pretty swiftly. What had happened was this. One of the mail workers had flagged down a passing train near Cheddington, right, and had delivered news of the robbery to the police. And the police had very quickly investigated and had concluded 
that seeing that as seeing as the robbers had told the staff to stay put for half an hour, they had concluded that the gang must have gone to a hideout nearby within half an hour's drive. So based on what the um uh, based on what the gang heard while listening to the police radio, they realised that the cops were searching the area around the robbery in a 50-kilometre radius, about how far you could get away in half an hour in a fast car. And so they knew that if they stayed put, because they're only, you know, 40-something kilometres away from, from where the crime had taken place, if they if they stayed put, they'd eventually be found. The police were essentially going from door to door. They were using what they called a dragnet tactic, right? And so regardless of whether or not it was on a map, the, the, the cops would eventually rock, rock up at Leatherslade Farm. Now, the robbery had taken place in the early hours of Thursday morning, and the original plan had been to stay uh, in the hideout until Sunday. But now, with you know the heat beginning to turn up, thieves instead, they got ready to leave that the very next day, on the Friday. They hurried to, to, to pack, package up all, divide up and package up all the money. Field was brought in. He visited the hideout not only to collect his share and a share for the Ulsterman, but also to organise extra vans to be driven to the farm because they obviously couldn't use the, uh, the cars the, 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 and the truck that had been used for the robbery because they'd been seen by these witnesses. So by Friday evening, right, all the, the gang members, they'd cleared out of this farm. They'd, they'd, they'd taken their, share, uh, their shares of the loot, no worries. Um, and they had they'd wiped down the place as, as best they could for their for their fingerprints and all that sort of stuff. But they had to make a rather hurried exit to make sure they they got out of dodge before the, the cops arrived. Now Field, he was left to organise a clean up operation of the farmhouse to make sure the police wouldn't find any clues there. And 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 when I say clean up operation, I mean it was Field's job to organise someone who would. Not to put a finer point, I mean you know he wasn't calling in a professional cleaning company to steam clean the carpets. No, he was. His job was to find an arsonist, someone who was, you know, going to burn the entire farmstead down to the ground. You know, that was the plan. Not a very subtle way to destroy the evidence, but it obviously should work. Except the guy who Field hired to burn down the farm and paid, you know, tens tens of thousands of pounds to do so, he didn't do it. He took the money that he was paid and he ran. And of course, when the gang found out that this arsonist had fallen through and he hadn't he hadn't burnt down the farm as he was supposed to it was too late to do anything none of them could return to the farm in case the police beat them there and so the the gang they are spitting chips let me tell you this they're worried that the whole thing is going to fall down around their ears once the cops got there now you know they had cleaned off their fingerprints and and that sort of thing as best they could but because they had to clear it in such a hurry there was no way they could clean the place up properly and it was full of evidence so they're they're pretty worried and some of them are that furious with feel that they bloody want to kill him then and there with their bare hands but that was the situation just hours after you know just a day or so after the robbery they've got this farmstead that they've, they've quickly abandoned that is as i say filled with evidence right of, of, of the robbery that's been that, that's taken place but you might be worrying what you might be wondering what's what's happening on the other side of things what's happening from the police perspective what are they doing to investigate once the alarm has been raised well by five o'clock uh, in the morning on, 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 you know, just after the robbery here. The police and detectives, you know, they're all down there on the, at the scene of the, the crime. They're, they're taking statements for all the, from all the postal workers and, and it's then that they begin their search of the surrounding area. Initially, it was just the local Buckinghamshire police, but it wasn't too long before, you know, Scotland Yard from London was brought in and became involved given the, the severity and the scale of the crime. And in fact, the, flame, the famous Flying Squad, a group of detectives whose sole purpose is to investigate robberies, they were brought in as well to handle the case. And their main focus seemed to have been searching the surrounding area for a hideout. Uh, and while it took them a few days, sure enough, the police did eventually arrive at, Le- at Leatherslade Farm. 
And uh, I mean, you know, I did say that the robbers hadn't cleaned the place. Well, the cops found mail sacks and undelivered post and banknote wrappers as well as other stuff like food and sleeping bags. There was really no doubt at all that this is the hideout that the robbers had used. They also found the truck, which had been very, very, (laughs) uh, very hurriedly repainted, uh, a bit of the old GTA paint spray there. Uh, And they found the two Land Rovers, which obviously matched the description of the vehicles that the robbers had used from the scene. But interestingly enough, they also found the Monopoly board that the robbers had used, you know, playing with their ill-gotten gains. They found this set, this Monopoly set. And you think, oh, yes, ho-ho, very, very amusing. An interesting bit of tid, a little interesting little tidbit here as part of this, uh, this story here. But no, it was actually a key piece of evidence, right, in bringing these criminals to justice. Because as much as the, the gang had wiped down their prints from surfaces and chairs and tables and whatever else throughout the farmstead, they forgot to wipe their fingerprints from the game of Monopoly. And so this farcical scene of these robbers, you know, they're sitting around playing Monopoly with real stolen money. This ended up being a key piece of evidence for the police as it was covered with fingerprints, as also was, for some weird reason, a bottle of tomato sauce. They forgot to, I mean, it's not quite as interesting or as funny, but the cops Got got plenty of fingerprints, you know, despite the wipe down because of this this monopoly set, and also just a bottle of tomato sauce they didn't wipe down. So weird. Anyway, while these clues, right, they were clear evidence of the fact that the farm had been used as a hideout by the thieves. It actually didn't get the police that much closer to finding the thieves themselves. It's not like they left, you know, pictures of themselves and their names lying around the farmstead. So the police had to continue their investigation, continue their hunt, but they did have a very, very lucky breakthrough not long after the robbery. Because as news of this robbery broke, an informant came forward. And to this day, we still don't know. We still don't really have a good idea of who this informant was. We, I mean, it wasn't one of the thieves. We know that. It was someone who was behind bars at the time. This bloke had been in prison at the time of the robbery. But perhaps he knew about the planning or you know, heard about who was involved. Maybe he was someone who had potentially been uh, you know, thought about involvement or, or something at some stage. We, we actually don't know. But he did have a good amount of detail about the robbery and, more importantly, he had the names, he had the identities of many of the people who had been there and carried off this heist, right? And and he didn't have all of them, but that in conjunction with some other informants, some other people who came forward with the information was enough for the police to really get their investigation into top gear. And unfortunately for the thieves, this was the beginning of the end, right? Uh, the, the the list of names that the, the police had been given by their informants was published. The police went public with the list. They published photos of the men that they were seeking as well. And it wasn't too long after that that the arrests began. The first bloke to be caught was uh, was a robber named Roger Cordry. He was the leader of the South Coast Raiders, the, the second gang that the Southwest Gang had brought in. Now he he uh, you know headed off from the uh, from the farmstead. He'd gone off and, and made his own way. He was laying low at a mate's place. Right, his mate, his name was William Bowl, and uh, Roger and William they're hanging out. They're laying low, but unfortunately for him, someone recognised him as he was cutting about. Uh, recognised him from the police posters and and tipped them off, tipped off the cops. They swept in, arrested Cordry and his mate Bowl, who had had nothing to do with the robbery whatsoever, and locked them both up. And it wasn't too long before there were more arrests as well. I mean, these these blokes' names, their identities, their faces are circulating with the police publications, and so the cops were able to chase down tip-offs and leads thanks to the, the names and photos they'd published, and before long, 
nine other members of the gang were arrested as well, including, interestingly enough, Field himself, despite not being at the scene and acting as more of a, a facilitator. He's more like a you know support staff for the, for the heist. He was nicked as well. Uh, due to a bit of bad luck for him, right? His arrest was quite interesting. Not long after the robbery, two people went out for a walk in some... I mean, I, I say some woods. I'll tell you the name of the woods. They went out for a walk uh, in the Dorking Woods. Honestly, I don't know what is going on with England. Get it together. Anyway, out in the Dorking Woods, they discovered three bags filled with money. Very suspicious indeed. And they handed them in to the cops. They took these bags of cash to a police station, handed them in. And, of course, the cops, realising there might have been a connection with these bags of money and the uh, the great train robbery, they investigated the area. They, they combed the woods to see if they could find more evidence. And sure enough, they found more. They found another bag filled with cash, as well as a receipt from a German hotel made out to Herr and Frau Field. It didn't take them too long to, to join the dots here. They've now got a name, right? Field. This is not a bloke whose name had cropped up in other in in other testimony because obviously he was a little bit he was a little bit more he was a little bit further away as a facilitator from the actual gang of thieves themselves. But it didn't, as I say, didn't take too long for the cops to connect the dots. Field worked at the same law firm that had overseen the purchase of Leather Slade Farm, so he was questioned obviously about the robbery and see if he had any involvement in it. Confusingly, of course, the bloke who had also bought the farm was also called Field, so the cops had a fair bit of legwork to do here. But during this interview, right, they interviewed Brian Field, the facilitator. They went to him and they asked him about, you know, what his involvement was with Leather Slade Farm. And funnily enough, Field had a great cover story. He spun them this tale about how it was the other Field, Lenny Field, who had seemed very suspicious when buying the farm. It was him who had, you know, was obviously up to something playing silly buggers. But then, not thinking anything of it, when the cops asked him about, you know, his trip to Germany and this hotel that he'd stayed in, he didn't realise that this was going to incriminate him, and so he answered honestly. He said, "Oh yeah, yeah, I went there with my wife. Yeah, yeah, we stayed at this uh, at that hotel. Absolutely, yeah, it was it was a great little holiday, had a great time, that sort of thing, right?" And so now the cops had him dead to rights because if this bloke was completely, you know, uninvolved with this robbery, if the bloke had nothing to do with it, was just happened to have the same name as a bloke who had bought the hideout. Why was a receipt with his name from a hotel that he had admitted st- uh, staying in? Why was that receipt with you know? Hundreds of thousands of uh, pounds in cash hidden away in the woods. So they got him. They nicked him along with, uh, you know, a, a bunch of other people from the gang. Field answering uh, the, uh, the the police questions in this way. Uh, I mean, you know, after all, the hair field on the receipt could have been Lenny Field. But after Brian Field freely admitted to staying at the hotel, it was clear that the bags filled with cash had been hidden in the wood, woods, woods were his. And so 10 of the 17 men involved were now under arrest. Plus, poor William Bowles, who had had nothing to do with it at all. But with these blokes under arrest, right, it moved into the next phase of uh, bringing them to justice. They were charged and they were brought to trial. The trials for the Great Train Robbery began in early 1964 in January and hundreds of interested sticky beaks turned out to watch the trial. It had to be moved to a larger venue just to accommodate its size. And it wasn't just a big trial, it was a long trial too, very bloody long, 51 days in total, and it featured hundreds of witnesses and and even more pieces of evidence. Now, as the trial continued, there was a a very interesting moment, a a scandalous moment really, when one of them was let off scot-free. 
And the reason for this, right, you might be thinking, hang on, of course, of course, we all know who it is, right? We all know which one of them was let off scot-free. It must have been William Bowl, the poor bloke who, had, you know, had nothing to do with the robbery. He wasn't even there. He was just hanging out with his mate, Rog. But no, it wasn't him. It was, a, it was another one of the robbers, a getaway driver, whose name was John Daly. He managed to weasel his way out of the charges very cleverly indeed because the, the police had a total absence of, of any evidence that he was involved in the robbery. He'd shaved his beard to change his appearance and the only evidence that the cops had were his fingerprints that had been on the Monopoly board. His lawyer, however, came up with a very, very clever line of argument and persuaded the court to drop the charges against Daly. He successfully argued that Daly had indeed played Monopoly. They weren't disputing that, right? He had played Monopoly with that set, but not at the farm. No, way earlier in the year with Reynolds, right? who happened to be his brother-in-law, it had just happened to be the same Monopoly set and his fingerprints had been left on it for, you know, all those weeks and months or whatever. And he was acquitted because there just wasn't enough evidence. They argued that he had no case to answer and so he walked free because there wasn't enough to actually connect him with the robber. And the lawyer said, well, he played this game of Monopoly a couple of months ago. His fingerprints are still there. So, you know, he shouldn't be, uh, he shouldn't be punished with the rest of them. But the others, the rest of them, they weren't so lucky. Every single one of them was sentenced, including, if you believe it, poor old William Bowl. Very bad result for him. He got 24 years. The two fields, uh, Lenny and Brian, they got 25 each, and the rest of them got 30. And just for good measure, Field's boss at the law firm also got three years in prison for helping with the sale of of Leather Slade Farm. The two fields did appeal. They managed to have their sentences reduced to just five years. And, and Cordry and Bowl also successfully appealed their sentences. But this didn't stop Bowl from bloody dying in prison, the poor bastard, just for being an accessory after the fact. But what about the others, the ones who hadn't been caught? Well, some simply disappeared. They were never heard from again. Again, at least three of them got away cleanly. And to this day, we're still not sure of their eventual fates or, you know, even some, even the names of some of them or their actual identities or anything else like that. One of the blokes who got away was a fellow named Jimmy White. Apparently, he was so adept at disappearing that he managed to, uh, even before the robbery, he lived life on the run for 10 years, right? This bloke, he was a thief. He was a lockpick. He was a, a locks, a lock. It's not a locksmith because that's like a legitimate trade. What is it, like a lock picker? I don't know what you call it. Anyway, he was a bloke who picked locks and he was very good at blending in with the crowd apparently and just disappearing uh, into the ether. He'd been on the run, as I say, for a decade before the robbery uh, and managed to steer clear of, uh, of being caught or prosecution or anything else like that for another three years. He wasn't caught until 1966 when the cops found £30,000 stashed in the walls of a caravan that he'd, brought and he, that he'd bought and, and that was enough to do him there. Uh, some of the other uh, robbers had actually fled overseas with their riches, and uh, as a result, they did a much better job of staying out of prison than the ones who remained behind. Reynolds, the bloke that I was talking about, the leader of the Southwest Gang, for example, he escaped uh, to Mexico in 1964 with his wife Angela and their young son Nick. Now, Nick Reynolds, um, <laughs> kind of interesting. Uh, he might be more familiar to you than you realise because he is a member of the band. Alabama 3, and he played the harmonica in the main theme of the TV show The Sopranos. So how about that? The son of a train robber ended up playing the harmonica in the theme of a 
you know, famous TV show about a crime family. So history is a circle. Anyway, Reynolds was joined by another robber who was on the run, a a bloke named Buster Edwards, although Edwards ended up turning himself in in 1966, and another fellow, Charlie Wilson, who managed to escape from prison. He was one of the ones who had been sentenced, but he actually managed to break out and uh, he fled to, to Mexico and then to Canada. Uh, Reynolds spent well beyond his means in Mexico and eventually followed Wilson to Canada to look for work. But after somehow blowing his entire fortune with this lavish spending, whatever else, Reynolds ran out of money. He returned to England and he was caught and he was imprisoned as well. The most interesting story about the fugitives, however, the ones who uh, who managed to either, you know, make it uh, escape justice to begin with or escape from prison after they'd been sentenced. Uh, The story of the robber... Ronnie Biggs, who, like Wilson, managed to escape from prison, uh, he, he did so by having accomplices chuck a 10-metre ladder over the prison wall while the other prisoners distracted the guards. So quite a brazen escape there. Uh, he fled to Paris. He spent a lot of his money on plastic surgery to change his appearance. And then, I mean, I'll tell you what, the adventures he had, he fled to Australia where he worked for the TV broadcast Channel 9 there. And then when Interpol caught up with him in Australia, he moved to Brazil, where he knew he couldn't be extradited. There was no extradition treaty between the UK and Brazil. Now, this flight, you know, across the world, it cost him most of his money. He only had 7,000 of the original 150 that he'd taken uh, from, from the robbery by the time he, landed, he, he arrived in Brazil. But in Brazil, because of the lack of extradition, he was, he was able to live in the open, safe in the knowledge he wouldn't be forcibly taken back to the UK. And so he lived, uh, you know... Uh, uh, a pretty brazen life there, remained there until 2001 when, at the age of 71, and after having had three strokes, he decided to return to the UK. He wanted to go back home uh, so he could, in his words, walk into a Margate pub as an Englishman and buy a pint of bitter. Now, he didn't get to do that because, you know, he was arrested as soon as he landed. His, as soon as his flight got into to, to the UK, he was, he was taken off in handcuffs and he was sent back to prison 45 years after his escape. So didn't get to buy that pint after all. But most of the robbers didn't serve their full sentences. You know, they were sentenced, as I say, upwards of 25, 30 years, whatever else. They didn't serve their full sentences. All the other thieves were released by 1978, and they, you know, a lot of them went on to live well into the 21st century. In fact, one of them's still alive, Bobby Welsh. He's still alive today. I mean, well, if he died, it didn't make the papers anyway. So there is actually still a surviving member of the Great Train Robbery crew. However, despite the majority of the thieves being caught and, and brought to justice, the overwhelming majority of the money was never recovered. Hardly any of it was traceable. I mean, think about it. It's just one pound, one pound and five pound notes that have been taken in. They're, they're small denominations, no trackable serial numbers, nothing like that. The, the money just, just kind of disappeared for the most part. It was laundered. It was divided up amongst friends and family. And, and in total, less than 400,000 pounds of the two and a half million that was stolen was ever recovered. And over half of that £400,000 were just the shares of Cordry and Field, the blokes who had been caught with their money. The rest just vanished. It was spent or laundered or was perhaps just simply lost, hidden away somewhere like the £47,000 that was found stashed in a phone box in South London one day. But much of the money from this robbery, a robbery that was at the time the biggest cash robbery in British history, it was never seen again. Incidentally, the, the, even today, the Great train, train Robbery is still one of the biggest cash robberies in, in British history, comfortably in the top 10, although put to shame by the 1990 City Bonds robbery that was worth 
678.3 million pounds so a fair bit more than the great train robbery but it still is one of the biggest heists in uk history as for the train itself one of the carriages that was decoupled from the train is it's still around they kept it uh, it's in the process of being restored while the hvp coach uh it's not around anymore it was burnt by police in 1970 burnt under police guard just in case anyone wanted to come and try to snag a bit of it as a souvenir or something else like that so it's not around anymore and the bridge where the robbery took place was renamed as Train Robbers Bridge until local outcry forced to be renamed once again. Um, it's now known as Mentmore Bridge. I mean, I don't know what's going on with the locals there. They, they say it's the Germans that are the ones with no sense of humour. Bloody hell, but I would have thought, I would have thought calling it Train Robbers Bridge is actually a you know, pretty good bit of gear. But look, before we end today's podcast, I know that there is one vital piece of information, one unanswered question that we have to to resolve before closing out the show today and that is you're all begging to know you're all you're all craving the knowledge what happened to the monopoly set well my friends i'm here to tell you i'm pleased to say you'll be very happy to hear that it's still around today the monopoly set that was you know that these robbers played with real money that they'd stolen from the train it is still around today on display with an actual five pound note from the robbery itself at the Thames Valley Police Museum. Although, I wasn't able to find out if they'd cleaned off all the fingerprints. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the great train robbery. Look, you know, I don't want this podcast to become a you know, a true crime podcast, because there's certainly enough of them, but it is very bloody good fun to get across heists and capers like these, especially when, you know, there's ones, well, I guess the train driver Mills would probably disagree with this assessment, but I was going to say, especially ones where, you know, broadly speaking, people don't get too badly hurt. He did get a a pretty bad whack on the noggin there, so I'm sure he'd have something else to say about it. But, uh, you know, these this robbery was, was pulled off without firearms, without too much in the way of violence or anything else like that. And, uh, it is a it's a it's a pretty good story to get across. So thanks so much uh, once again. It's always great to hear from listeners. So I, I appreciate Joe Lynch, Lynch getting in touch with this topic suggestion, and I, I was glad I was able to uh, to make an episode out of it. If you want to do the same thing, of course, here we go. All the boring housekeeping stuff coming your way. Halfhousehistory.net. You can find the contact form there and get in touch, just like Joe did. Um, if you want to support the show, a couple of different ways you can do that. Of course, just sharing the show with your friends and your family, whatever else, telling them about it, leaving a review on iTunes or maybe Spotify. I don't know if you can leave reviews on Spotify or whatever else. Uh, thanks to the people who've already done that. But if you're in, if you're interested in making a, a contribution of a more financial nature, of course, you can do that. You can head to the merch shop. If you go to halfhousehistory.net and uh, follow the links through to the merch shop, you'll find all sorts of nonsense there on sale, T-shirts, and uh, you know that, that's just where it begins. Looking to add some, some new merch designs in the coming weeks and months. So if you've got any ideas for them, please let me know. Looking to refresh and, and jazz up the merch store a little bit in the, uh, in the coming time. And of course, the Patreon's just been redone. Patreon.com slash halfhousedhistory, where you can find exclusive Patreon-only merch. I want to give a very big thank you to all the people who have been, uh, either all the new patrons, welcome, by all means, welcome, all the people who have been upping their pledges every month in order to gain access to that succulent new uh, uh, Patreon merch. Thank you so much to all of you people there who are doing that. And if you've been considering it, hey, look, now's a great time to support the show. 
if you uh, if you support the show on Patreon for three months at the five, ten, or twenty dollar tiers, you will get merch shipped to your door at no extra cost, uh, and it's the only way to get that exclusive Patreon merch. So, uh, so if you've been thinking about it. Hey, look, I'd really appreciate it. It's been fantastic to see people come out and support the show in the way that they have. I'm very humbled by it. So, uh, cheers very much. Anyway, that's that for this week. Thanks for tuning in. See you back in next week for more half ass history. Looking forward to it. Please send in those topic suggestions. Anything else? Oh. Thank you so much, of course, everyone who sent in their feedback for the last three episodes, uh, the sort of little three-parter we did on the Greco-Persian War. Overwhelmingly positive. Didn't really get anyone saying they hated it. So if you did, sorry, because there'll probably be more like that in the future. Again, the the consensus from people seemed to be little from column A, little from column B. They like the silly one-off episodes about, you know, hijinks and whatever else, but they also like the more serious ones that go a little bit deeper on stuff. So I think moving forward, we'll have a good mix of both with half House History because... Uh, yeah, again, the last three episodes were great fun to do. But then, you know, talking about a silly robbery where they play Monopoly after stealing, you know, two and a half million pounds, also very good gear as well. So we'll get across all that. Anyway, that is that for this week. See you back here next week for more nonsense. Uh, looking forward to your company then. Leaving you with a, pe- a question, of course, posed on Reddit before we leave. This one adapted from a question posed by Redditor Iums. Don't know how to pronounce that. We've all heard of trains coupling, right? But you never hear about trains giving birth. What does train contraception look like?